Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for this latest episode of the INC Preview Show. My name is Carl Bamage, and I am joined once again by the man on the right-hand side of my screen. He is the Devon to my Bully Ray. He is the Edge to my Christian. It's John Marsh in MMA. John, thank you very much for joining us. I like the references this week. Uh, we're big WWE weekend, and uh, we got a big UFC next weekend, UFC 273. Uh, it's good to be back on the INC Live channel. I have made the realization that this is going to be going out just as WrestleMania is on. So thank you very much, the 10 people who are watching the INC preview show. Yes, UFC 273 is just around the corner. And I want to say a big thank you to everybody who is joining us and has also been joining us for all of our content here on IMC Live. Uh, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who tuned in for UFC 272. We had about 700 people who watched our preview show. And a big thank you as well to anybody who watched our interview with uh, a man that's going to be on the card, Damian Weeks. You can find that up on the corner of your screen right now. And also, as well, a big thank you to the newest member of the INC family, Joe Neal. Joe has been taking over the post-fight recaps. I've just been far too busy to be doing myself. And I have to say, John, he's been doing a pretty damn good job so far. Yeah, that's true. I watched a couple of his shows. They were really good, and it seems like he's a huge fan of the sport. You know, a good personality on the camera, too, as well. So uh, it's nice to have Joe aboard the channel as well. Yes, and of course, obviously, Joe's going to be doing his bit next week when he will be recapping this event. And if there's anybody out there who wants to be knowing what you have to say about everything to do with mixed martial arts, where's the best place to go, John? So you can find me at Twitter at UFO underscore UFC and my podcast, the Martian MMA podcast, where I talk about the betting odds for every single UFC fight you can find on SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts before every UFC card. One of the best people in the sport when it comes to predictions. Thank you. Thank you, my man. But uh, let's see how we do this week head to head and see if we disagree on any of these picks. Certainly so, because we are going to be talking about UFC 273, uh, which promises to be, in my opinion, like, I was looking through the first three cards of the year. So obviously we had Ngannou versus Garn, all the way through to Usman versus Covington. I thought they were they were fairly solid cards. I thought Whitaker versus Adesanya, very competitive title fight, bit split in regards to where the result maybe could have gone in that one. I felt with 272, though, which we'll just sort of talk about in a bit more detail, it's very rare that the UFC do non-title pay-per-view main events. And I don't know about you, I came out of 272 feeling, feeling it was a bit of a pointless card. Like, we got the result that we all expected it to. It came the way that we thought it was going to, with Colby grappling to a unanimous decision. And it was just sort of a bit like, yeah, it's got the UFC branding, but I didn't feel like I, I gained anything from watching that show. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, very predictable outcome there, and it happened. You know, I guess the fight was a a little bit better than some people expected. Obviously, that one big knockdown for Masvidal in round four made it interesting, but it kind of seemed like um, Diaz versus uh, Leon Edwards, where like nothing really happened all fight, and then like one moment made the fight like sort of interesting, um, but still, we we didn't really have a, a great intriguing main event there and then the rda fiziev or rda and um moicano fight was you know just rather one-sided beat down uh probably should have been stopped a lot earlier there so you know not the best you know non-title main events to be put in or non-title five rounders to be put on a pay-per-view 
yeah but we do have two title fights on this card to make up for it um most of the bookmakers think that those two title fights are going to be quite one-sided we'll get to those once we do so before we do however we're going to be talking a little bit about the fights building up to that so we're going to be talking about the prelims you can see those on your screen right now and john if anybody who watches this show follows me on social media knows we like to talk about boy stables on this channel mm -hmm. now i've got a big question for you is aspen lad versus raquel pennington the most boy-stable-worthy match in MMA history? That's a great question. And I got to say that anybody who has Aspen Ladd in their boy-stable needs uh, a bit of a psychiatric evaluation. Uh, Raquel Pennington is a complete babe, you know, great fighter. Uh, you know, a man like you, great taste, uh, <laughs> one of your, one of your uh, favorite fighters. But anybody who likes Aspen Ladd, like what? I actually have a friend named uh, Marcus who who loves Aspen Lab, but you know uh, th there might be something wrong with that guy because uh, everyone should be cheering for Rocky Raquel in this fight, and uh, hopefully she does her thing and uh, you know sends sends Lad back to the fraud land that whatever wherever she came from. I believe that Raquel Pennington. I think I saw the bookmakers odds with Bovada. I think she's a minus two hundred favorite, so most people are, are backing Raquel to win this one. I think. Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways, this is a perfect fight for both people. First off, Raquel is on a little bit of a winning streak herself. Not the most intriguing fights, not the most glamorous fights to watch. But uh, she's managing to get it done. I thought the Macy Chasson win was fairly good given the circumstances. And bearing in mind what happened to Aspen um, against uh, Norma DeMont, which was a very poor performance... Mm. She needs to really make a stamp to say, hey, I am still worthy of being considered one of the top bantamweight fighters. And Raquel Pennington is going to be that gauge. Because if you beat Raquel Pennington, as we've seen with so many of the people who've done so before, it's a sign that you are someone who's worthy to be talked about. Um, yeah, well, I do agree with that. But I mean, I, I would be shocked if she beat Raquel Pennington. I mean, Raquel is just so much more experienced. Uh, she's better in all areas of the fight. Um, maybe offensive grappling is the only place that, that Aspen may be better. But her wrestling stinks. I mean, uh, who knows what was going on in her head in that Dumont fight. Just a terrible performance all around from her. Raquel had that short notice fight against Macy, was able to finish her in that fight. Um, so, I mean, I, I still think Raquel's got the way more skilled, the way more experienced of the two. And uh, the UFC is doing Aspen no favors by throwing her uh, to Raquel. They could have given her a much easier fight. They could have uh, maybe given her Betch Cohea, gotten her out of retirement. We all would have loved to see that. But, you know, instead they threw her to like a top five gatekeeper in the Bantamweight division for the past several years. And I think Aspen's going to get that ass beat, and I would love to see it. So I uh, can't wait for Raquel to put on a, put on a show this Saturday. Outside of that fight, is there anyone else who takes your fancy? I think for my own personal perspective, one of the people I'm interested in is Darian Wiggs. Obviously, we had the interview with Darian, who, absolutely lovely guy. Uh, fantastic of him to take the time out of his schedule to do this interview. Um, he is, it has to be said, though, very much the B-side when it comes to the fight that's going to be headlining the prelims because he's taking on Ian Gary. Ian is a very highly rated um, prospect, Fights with Sanford MMA, obviously Irish, so he's got the. I think the UFC are trying to hope that he latches onto the maybe the Conor McGregor market. Um, what did you make of Ian Gary's performance up against Jordan Williams though in his UFC debut? Is did you see that and maybe think to yourself, this is someone who's worth watching? 
No, it was terrible. I mean, he won the fight by first round knockout, but he looked just about as bad as possible uh, in a fight that you win by first round knockout as he could. Um, I mean, he doesn't really have that same experience that a guy like Patty did. Uh, he fought Patty actually fought in Cage Warriors for like a, a long time. Like he he must have had like 12, 15 fights in Cage Warriors, so he got a lot of experience. Gary kind of rushed into the UFC a little bit, and I don't I don't think this guy's skill is too refined at all. And Jordan Williams is a pretty low tier welterweight, you know, probably like one of the lowest 10 or 15 welterweights on the entire roster. And he was giving Ian Gary a lot of issues there um, before, you know, one punch basically knocked him out. So uh, his interview afterwards, I mean, he word for word copied like Conor McGregor stuff about we're not here to take part. We're here to take over. And it was just an extremely unoriginal interview. And uh, I don't know. I'm definitely going to be interested in in, uh, fading and betting against Ian Gary for the foreseeable future. Uh, I'll probably be on uh, INC's friend Darian Weeks this weekend. I mean, he's a three to one underdog. And I don't know. I just don't think Gary is capable of looking like a four to one favorite out there. So I'll be uh, happy to to pick against Gary. And uh, I have a sneaky suspicion this fight's going to end up on the main card. Uh, you know, you and I know how much the UFC loves to put on like a sloppy heavyweight fight at the start or at the first two fights of a pay-per-view. So maybe they'll keep Olenek Vandera there. But, uh, you know, Gary has a little bit of popularity right now. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them throw him on the the first fight on the main card. I think when you have fighters who are so young into their career, so we're talking eight fights for Ian Gary, uh, six fights for Darian Weeks, there's still a lot of lottery around what to expect from both guys. Um, So I think people placing so much money on Ian Gary is a big risk given that element of unknown. And I know Darian Weeks, he has a grappling-based background, so he's going to be wrestling i thought did very well against brian barbarina who has a lot of experience so there is value in a darian weeks bet but i wouldn't go out and say put all your money on them i would still favor ian gary but there is value in weeks maybe pulling off the upset yeah i mean i completely agree and uh you know gary only went pro a little over three years ago i mean so this guy's career has been very expedited to the point where he is and uh you know i definitely don't think he's good as the public is making him out to be who else stands out for you uh, any interesting voice and in strike to uh fluffy hernandez back in action for the first time since the upset win over Rodolfo Vieira. any of those take your fancy yeah, I'm interested in uh, Marcin Tabura. Always love watching him fight. Um, and then uh, Vince from Hell Pachel, a great fighter, taking on Mark Madsen uh, in the lightweight division. That'll be a really good fight. Um, but we don't really know what fights are going to end up on the prelims and what aren't, considering the fact that this that last fight on the main card isn't quite finalized yet. I mean, the UFC website does have Olenek and Vandera, but I suspect they're going to swap that one out. So we'll, we'll see who ends up in the main card spot. Um, I I think it I think it should be Gary just because it seems like he does have some public interest um, and you know I, I would love the guy getting more attention uh, because it'll just set up that future uh, bet against him in the future even sweeter uh, so you know that's my thinking behind that I do love how random the card order can be for some of these UFC pay-per-views like the one that was six in my mind was when some reason they put Pollyanna Battelio versus JJ Aldrich. I think it was on like UFC 227, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. It seems like 
half the pay-per-views each year, they just throw a completely random fight on the main card. And it's like, what the hell is this fight doing here? But maybe maybe they'll keep Olenek Vandera after all. Yeah, I want to make it clear that we're basing this card order on the most recent post for Marcel Dorf. Marcel does a fantastic job keeping everyone updated when it comes to uh, upcoming matches, when they're going to be booked, etc. Now, this is based on the card order that he put out most recently. So if this is wrong, uh, we apologize for that. So all information correct at the time of recording, all that disclaimer. One fight that is going to be on the card is the first fight we're going to be talking about. And we're going to the women's strawweight division for this one. It's Mackenzie Dern, the number five seed, who was hoping to try and maintain her place in the top ten. But to do so, she will need to go through Tisha Torres. Now, I was looking up a few stats in regards to this fight. And it came up uh, over a infographic, which was the UFC card in Columbus in 2020. Now, this was the card that was supposed to take place over there. Unfortunately, it got cancelled. And on that card, Tisha Torres was set to take on uh, Mizuki Inoue in a fight pass prelim. She was down at number 12 in the strawweight rankings. And this was basically her fighting to save her UFC career because it would have been five losses in a row had she lost that one. She's been one of the sort of, like, unappreciated stars of the lockdown era. Three wins in a row, finally gets herself her first knockout finish when she stops Sam Hughes. And now she's building up the momentum again and showing people, hey, there's a reason why this girl is always held in such high regard as sort of like the strawweight gatekeeper because she's a very tough out. Yeah, she has been on a tear lately. She's probably looking like at her all-time best. Um, and I definitely think she's the the better overall fighter than Mackenzie Dern, yet I still think this is a really close matchup. Obviously, Dern is probably one of the best top position grapplers in all of women's MMA. So that's like a huge equalizer. They can they can make their skill, you know, very even because even though obviously Tisha's the better striker, more experience, she's got great cardio. Um she does pretty good in terms of defensive grappling as well, but just that that one one takedown from Dern could really be a finish the fight around. Everybody knows that about Dern, so that that alone makes this fight pretty fifty fifty to me. And uh, you know, I, I definitely like Tisha uh, better as a fighter, so I'll be cheering for her. But uh, my friend, my friend Ozzy actually sent like the, these videos of uh, the. The, uh, the Tisha and Angela Hill fight, the her most recent fight. And Angela Hill got like a few takedowns on her. And Angela Hill even mounted Tisha mm. Torres briefly in one of those grappling exchanges. So once I saw that, I was like, oh my, maybe maybe Tisha doesn't have a great chance here. Because if Angela Hill is taking you down and mounting you, uh, imagine what Mackenzie Dern is going to do. I do have some big concerns for what could happen to Tisha if Mackenzie Dern is able to get a hold of her. The thing is, is she going to be able to? Because we see these sort of ailments of Tisha Torres' game based off the Angela Hill fight. But we also saw the same thing when it came to Mackenzie Dern. Because a lot of people forget this. Mackenzie Dern, at the back end of 2021, four-fight winning streak. Three of those came by first-round submission. And then the Marina Rodriguez fight happened. And I'm not entirely sure, even to this day, whether that was Marina Rodriguez fighting so well that she made Mackenzie Dern look bad or Dern's limitations as a striker coming to the fore. 
Yeah, I think it's probably the latter about, I mean, her striking is, is very raw. Her wrestling doesn't seem to be getting any better. So she has this tremendous jujitsu, this great top game, but the, the striking, the footwork, the wrestling is just not mm-hmm. there. And it doesn't seem to be developing. Like we haven't really seen many developments in terms of those areas of skill and um, maybe the fact that she lost her last fight will 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 make her realize that she needs to go back to the drawing board and and fix some of these holes um like when she can win a, she can win a fight against um Nina Ansaroff or Randa Marcos and then not really work on some of her issues because she won by first round submission. But the fact that she lost like comprehensively to Marina might make her go back to to square one and try to fix some of those holes. But I don't know, man. She strikes me as just like a, a, a fighter that's going to have like yes man coaches around her and never really tell her the harsh truth. And I could see Dern still having those issues, you know, Throughout the, throughout the rest of her career. I can see her wrestling, her footwork, her striking never getting any better. I seem to remember somewhere, maybe it was around sort of 224 time when she was going to fight Amanda Cooper. I did read somewhere that she had a falling out with her original coaching team because she wanted to be at a coaching location which was close to the beach. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because she said that she liked the, her number one thing in life is like laying on the beach. Like that's her favorite thing in, in life, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, I will say though that obviously there's a big difference between the Mackenzie Dern pre-pregnancy and after pregnancy because one thing I will say is she always had a reputation for maybe being a bit out of shape, being a bit lax in training. You can't fault her sort of preparation since then. Like physically, she looks so much leaner than she did beforehand. Yeah, I, I mean that's definitely true. Um... But then, you know, it's obviously, you know, respect to all women fighters who have children because that's just a, a huge, massive uh, responsibility that is added to you. Uh, and, you know, it's got to it's got to affect your career somehow. I mean, you can't dedicate your life and your time as much to training when you have a child like that. So I think she's done a, a pretty good job of, you know, staying committed, but uh, going to be a, another tough test. I mean, they're doing her no favors and with these matchups, right? They're get they're giving her tough, tough matchups. Uh, and Tisha will be another tough one. The big cage will help Tisha. So she can yes. use her movement to, to get around more. And, you know, the striking is going to be quite one-sided for Tisha Torres. So all she has to do is keep this fight vertical, uh, maybe stuff some takedowns, escape bottom once or twice, and, and she should be able to win the fight. Um, so I'll be pulling for Tisha to get it done. I'm personally leaning towards Tisha as well. It's going to be a unanimous decision because all Tisha Torres wins come by unanimous decision, let's be honest. Um, and I think it's going to be, we're going to get that sort of quintessential performance from her. We're going to have her staying on the outside, darting in with those sort of quick Frankie Edgar style one-two blitzes, managed to get out the way before Dern can get a hold of her. I, if Dern is going to win this, it's going to be by basically submission. Because I think, mm. and that's going to be a tough ask in itself because Tisha Torres is almost impossible to finish. You look at some of the people who have fought her and managed to beat her. Like, I've, I was looking through her losses here. These are the people who've beaten Tisha Torres. Rose Namajunas, Ioana, Whaley, Jessica Andrade, and Marina Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Those no but no bad losses. No bad losses in there whatsoever. If Mackenzie Dern is able to beat Tisha Torres, it's a massive feather in her cap. Uh the thing is, I just don't think that she's going to be able to catch her and be able to get her down. If she does, it's game over. But I think Tisha's footwork and her speed is going to be too much. 
Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily game over if she gets on on bottom. Like, I think that Dern could win a decision with, like, her top game and winning two out of three rounds. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I would be I would be a little surprised to see Dern get the sub. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Dern win, but get, finishing her would be impressive to me. So I'm not quite as confident in Tisha as you, but I'll definitely be cheering for her to get it done. Yeah, I think that's maybe my own personal bias is they're leaning into uh, supporting Tisha Torres. Right, everybody loves the tiny tornado. Come on, how could you not? Yep. Do people love the fight that's going to be, at this moment in time, the second fight on the main card? Because when it comes to short notice fights on the main card, you can't get nothing better than a sloppy heavyweight brawl. It's Alexia Linick who's taking on Jared Vandera. Now, originally, this was going to be Linick taking on Ilya Latifi. Latifi, unfortunately, fortunately has to pull out. And Vandera who headlined the ESPN prelims against Andrea Lofsky back in February. He's taken the short notice call. It's worked out well for him. He's possibly getting the main card payday and potentially being the last ever opponent for Alexi Linick. A lot of people believing this could be the end of the Boa Constrictor. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we don't have to spend too much time on this because I I don't know I don't know why they they put this fight on the main card. Jared Vandera is one and four one and three in the UFC. Um, you know they signed people to four fight contracts and he's one and three. I I'm surprised he even got re-signed honestly. Um, especially maybe because it was a split decision against Arlovski, but that was widely regarded as a terrible decision. Um, it was a literal rocket scientist who scored that fight for Jared Vandera. So I don't know. There must be a disconnect between rocket science and MMA. Um, but, you know, Alexi is always a hilarious fighter to watch. But, I mean, the guy is like a 43-year-old heavyweight. Like, are we really trying to put this fight on pay-per-view and have people pay $15 a fight to watch these old, sloppy, fat heavyweights? I mean, that's all I have to say off the, off the start. What, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, first off, I have to praise the longevity of Linux. Like, this was a guy who made his debut in 1996 to put that into perspective pride fighting championships held its first event in 1997 so he predates pride and he wasn't even born yet he's still in the ufc and even though there's now question marks about whether or not he's good enough to be in the ufc i still think the longevity and the amount of fights that he's had is something that i will give a lot of praise for but that being said, I have seen with his past couple of fights that a lot of the strengths that Olenek had are maybe starting to go on the way. Because he's always been a fantastic grappler. But we saw with Sergei Spivak, who took him down multiple times and avoided any sort of submission threat. Maybe that's not as prominent as it once was. Um, and the big thing for me, he's getting rocked so, so easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, very, very valid concerns. I, I thought the Spivak performance, though, like, I think the the Olenek that fought Spivak would probably dunk on Vandera still. Like, I, I think that, I don't even know, Vandera doesn't really know what he, he's good at. Uh, I mean, before the UFC, he was taking people down and finish them on top, but he hasn't been able to take many opponents down since getting to the UFC. And his one win, uh, the Tafa fight, was just a complete striking performance where he just had actually really good striking volume and looked like a better striker than ever in that fight. So, um, you know, I think they're going to probably collide into each other on the feet. They're going to be, you know, hitting each other with the same type of shots. Uh, Neither guy hits particularly hard on the feet, so I don't see a knockout for either guy coming. Uh, And, 
you know, I think Olenek was still pressing pretty hard in that round three of that Spivak fight. He might have won round three, honestly, against Spivak because he was just charging forward and throwing strikes. And, um, you know, he, he just still chugs along. Uh, so you got to give Olenek credit. Um, his fight against Verdum just a, a little over just about two years ago. I mean, that was one of his, his best performances there. I mean, he he spam strikes on the feet against Verdum. He was hurting him with shots. He was able to escape a few bad positions on the ground from Verdum. So I don't know. I'm leaning towards Olenek, even though he's 44, even though he's on a three-fight losing streak. Uh, I think I'll, I'll side with him to win this one uh, via decision, honestly. I heard someone describe Alexi Olenek's fighting style as ugly but functional. It's a good way to it's a good way to describe it. Which is also the way that a lot of girls describe me. <laughs> but I, I'm in a very similar boat to you. I think that there's always big concerns when it comes to age. I think it's something that I maybe value into the sport that a lot more than other people do. I think when you've got a 44-year-old with durability questions, there's always going to be that sort of err on the side of caution when it comes to a Linux. If this was even, say, two years ago, like the Olenek the fourth for Doom, I'm picking him any day of the week because I think Vandera does have a lot of limitations on the ground when he's on when he's on bottom. We saw that with Romanov. We saw that with Sergei Spivak. It's, it, the question is, how washed do we think Olenek is? If we think he's utterly and totally washed, then I can see Vandera piecing him up a bit. It's a tough one to call. Yeah. You can understand why the bookmakers have this one as a pick em. I think at the moment, Olenek, minus 105. Jared Vandera, a slight favorite, minus 150. Yeah, and uh, so to correct what I said is Spivak um, won the last two rounds. Olenek won the first round, so I was wrong about that one. Um, and you got to think, Vandera's coming in here on, on, on very short notice, and I'm pretty sure Vandera is, is, is quite obese. I'm pretty sure he weighs in at the limit of... Yeah, he weighs in at the limit of 265. So... Uh, he fought February 12th. You know, he was out of camp for the past, uh, you know, two weeks or two months, you got to think. And you have no idea what kind of shape this guy is going to show up in uh, on, on a week's notice, right? I mean, he just got the call a few days ago, maybe 10 days notice he had for this fight. So, uh, you know, he's got to cut all the way down to 265 to make that limit. And, uh, you know, I'm not even confident that he's going to make that weight. He might miss weight uh, for heavyweight for like the second time in history. So I don't know. I can't put much stock in Vandera. I mean, I, I got to lean with the experience of Olenek, even though he's ancient. Uh, I, I just don't think that Vandera is good enough to beat him, honestly. So I'll, I'll side with the old man, Alexi. Uh, I'll end this by bringing up some of the Linux notable wins over his career. So obviously he's bought like 500 times and there's some quite big scalps in there i was looking through some of the fighters he's beaten fabricio Verdum, mark hunt travis brown Mirko krokop like regardless <laughs> of what you think of Lenick and whether or not he was fighting the best competition through his career those are four good names to have on your resume yeah four out of what 55 59 though <laughs> um no, he. I mean, I'm sure he has some other other good wins throughout there. But I mean, just one of the the funniest fighters in MMA history, honestly. Like, anytime this guy ske steps in the cage, he's gonna have that great entertainment when he's uh, in between rounds, like with his legs up on the cage, laying on his back. I mean, who does that? That's just amazing. I can't wait to see Alexi fight. Although I am devastated we didn't get to see a Latifi Olenek because that would have been uh, just peak MMA, honestly, right there. Heavyweight Latifi is it's an experience. 
Yeah, I mean, that would have been so amazing to watch. It's a, it's a damn shame that Latifi's out of that fight, but hopefully we can hold on, hold on to it in the future. Fight number three. Now, it's safe to say this is the one that most of the casual fans are fixating their interest on. We're going to the welterweight division, and it's Gilbert Burns, former title challenger, coming off a win against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, taking on Hamza Chimaev. And I'm going to start by... I was wondering how I would frame this when I was sort of like prepping all my notes before this. And I just thought I'd rather bite the bullet and just say the truth. I don't like Hamzat. I think that he is a fantastic fighter and I will give him all the respect for his abilities in the world. But I find him, I find him quite arrogant. I think he's, I think he's unlikable and I think his fan base, it's, it's also a big factor in sort of like some of my sort of issues that I have with the guy. So like, imagine if you took the worst traits of Connor's fans and Khabib's fans, mixed in with a little bit of Colby's fans as well, and you've got sort of Hamzat's fan base. Now, he is incredibly talented, and he's obviously earned this big opportunity to step up and potentially earn himself a title fight, but... It's hard for me to root for the guy. And I have to be honest about that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of valid concerns. Um, first of all, there's some neighbor's dog barking, so I apologize <laughs> if you guys hear that hear that shit. Um, but uh, do you hear it, Carl? Is it, like, annoying? It sounds um, fine to me. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so, yeah, a lot of valid criticisms about Chimaev. I mean, obviously, the personality is just kind of a, a carbon copy of all, like, D- Dagestani. I mean, a lot of Khabib... Uh, influence in there um you know all he's saying is i'll smash these guys i'll i'll that's really all he says is i'll smash these guys um so uh, it kind of reminds me of like a, a rocky villain of some sort like that but um yeah i mean you brought up a lot of a lot of good criticisms i mean how can you how can you disagree with a lot of them I'd say the biggest one you probably left out is the fact that he's like, uh, you know, an errand boy for the dictator uh, Ramazan Kadyrov over there in uh, Crimea and whatnot. So um, that's probably the worst thing about him. But I mean, I'm I'm in the the, the mind frame that Chimaev is the second coming of Jesus Christ himself because that's just the only way that you can like explain this guy's skill set and explain uh, the the hype behind this guy. Um, I, I think that I had some doubts, um, you know, leading up to some of his fights, like the, the GM three fight in particular, love Gerald Mearshart. And the fact that he knocked GM three out in 15 seconds like that was just insane. Like, it, I mean, that it really left me speechless when that happened. And I mean, I still think that's probably the most impressive thing he's done. I mean, he's, fighting a welterweight now and he just walked down a middleweight in Gerald and just put him to sleep with one punch uh he made that look so easy I mean I feel really bad for Gerald there but um you know obviously Chimaev clearly has uh, some incredible athletic uh, abilities he's clearly like an a-plus athlete uh but we still don't really know a whole lot about the guy, right? We don't know how he looks in prolonged striking exchanges. We don't know if he can check leg kicks. We don't know what his cardio is going to look like, especially at this welterweight weight class. This guy is gigantic. Mm -hmm. Like he is, he could be a full body middleweight and he's cutting all the way down to welterweight here. Who the hell knows what that weight cut is going to do to his cardio in the later rounds. And we've, we've never seen that. So, Against Gilbert Burns, uh, a guy who is a former title challenger, a guy who's got probably double-digit wins in the UFC, who's a skilled fighter everywhere in the striking and on the ground, of course. 
I mean, it's a perfect test uh, for Chimaev, in my opinion. And if you're if you're listening to what I'm saying, you wouldn't expect that the odds would be minus six hundred for Chimaev. That's eighty six percent, and then Burns plus four twenty five. The bookmakers give him a less than twenty percent chance of winning the fight. So, I mean, th- those are some shocking odds to most people. I would expect, but um, yeah, that's my that's my little introduction. I'll pass it back to you, uh, so you can rant about how much you like Chimaev some more. Yeah, um, I'm going to try and be as sort of impartial, sort of diplomatic as I possibly can. Um, I have been sort of like sort of arguing some of the cases against Shemaev against a lot of these fans. And I I find this with a lot of fighters who sort of like get the big hype trades and get the big fanfares, in the, which is that I sometimes feel that a lot of those fans don't want people bringing up some questions about the fighting, fighter that they're talking about. Because I've sort of like quite lightly brought up some of the similar things that you have, some of the sort of unknowns regarding Hamzat. How is this guy going to look in the third round? And most, and especially what happens when he faces somebody that takes the fight to him? Because I've seen a lot of fighters over the years who, when they're in control, when they're dictating the pace of a fight, they look like they are world beaters. But the moment someone turns the tables and takes the fight to them and puts them under pressure, they crumble. Like, I'm going mm-hmm. to use this example because she fought fairly recently, Sarah McMahon. Sarah McMahon, when she's in control of a fight, looks like an absolute world beater. Like, we even saw that when she fought Juliana Pena, of course, Pena's the champion now, but she dominated that first round. But the mm-hmm. moment she faces any kind of adversity, her composure crumbles. And I want to see what happens when Shemaev is facing somebody that cracks him, that stuffs the takedown attempts. Is he going to be able to maintain that composure and power through it? Or is he going to think, oh my God, what's happening here? This isn't supposed to be happening. And there are some examples of that online if you do look for them. Like we were talking about this before. He fought Rainer de Ridder in one of the sparring sessions. Now for people who don't know, Reina de Ridder competes in one championship, very accomplished grappler himself. And Hamza tried shooting for takedowns on multiple occasions to get him down. And de Ridder was stuffing all of them. And you could see Hamza getting more and more frustrated as the sparring session went on. So it does maybe it does make you think, what does happen if this guy doesn't have things going his way? Because you can see right now, even in his body language, it's like a lot of it is playful to him. A lot of it is jokey. Is that still going to be the case when he's maybe up against it? Right. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest question here is, you know, adversity. His UFC career, four fights, he hasn't faced one remote shred of adversity not not one not one path of resistance nothing he got easy takedowns on phillips mckee knocked out mirshart instantly got an easy takedown on jingliang and he has been in control of every second of his ufc career now that is extremely impressive uh, on its own but you do have to realize that two of those opponents are, you know, not UFC level, not even close, John Phillips and Rice McKee. And then two of the wins were impressive, the Mirshoy and Jing Liang fight. But to me, fights are more impressive when you do battle a little bit of adversity instead of when it's just complete, you know, one-way mm-hmm. traffic. You know, like um, 
I, I don't know. I don't have an example off the top of my mind, but like I would rather see a guy uh, be one one heading into round three and then dig deep in round three and win a, a 15 minute decision than I would see him finish in round one. To me, that 15 minute decision where you battle back from losing is much more impressive than a, a one way finish. And we haven't seen, you know, Chimaev, uh face any type of remote adversity and even if you go back to his fights before the ufc still really very little adversity in there he's only been out of round one two times in his career he finished both of those guys early in round two so we don't know what he's going to look like in the second half of a fight we don't know what he's going to look like if he gets you know tagged with a punch or these you know calf kicks gilbert burns has good leg kicks good calf kicks we don't know what it's going to look like if his his leg gets hit with one of those hard good place calf kicks and i mean there's just so many questions that you could pose about Chimaev, and uh, I don't know if we'll, we'll ever see him. Te- we'll ever see them tested. I mean, he could just have a complete one-way dominant path to the title. If he beats Burns, I don't know what what'll be next. Maybe uh, Colby will be next for him. Maybe they'll just fast track him right to to Usman, and maybe you know, in some crazy universe, he he threw Burns and Usman without any trouble, and this guy could just be a generational talent. But are you really gonna? Are you really ready to stamp him as a, a generational? dominant fighter after four wins in the UFC with no adversity. I mean, you got to have questions like you were saying earlier, uh, the fanboys, fangirls of, of whoever, uh, who, who don't like when you challenge fighters. I mean, that's, that's just, you know, stupid. You got to challenge, you got to ask questions. You got to pose these questions about fighters because we see too many prospects come in and get some hype. And then, like you say, face some adversity and then crumble. So I don't think that Burns is, or that, uh, Hamza is going to crumble at the first, uh, th- uh, sign of adversity, but you still got to wonder what it's going to look like if Burns gets him in, you know, some of his better, uh, his good positions. If he get lands those calf kicks, if he tags comes out with the punch, I mean, I, I just want to see the man tested really. I think there will be someone out there eventually who will take the fight to Hamzat. And even if if you if you're someone like maybe who me who maybe is a bit more skeptical about the guy, uh, I hate to say it, from doing my own personal research, I don't think that Gilbert Burns is that guy. I just think there's a lot of concerns I have about Gilbert on two fronts. One, I think that he gives up too many takedowns for my liking, which is always a dangerous a dangerous game that you can play especially with someone like Hamzat and in terms of striking I think his defense is maybe a bit porous so I think there's a definite concern when it comes to that regard as well if you were Hamzat what statement is going to be bigger for you what's going to be a bigger impact to say oh my god and just sort of like keep that hype train going is it a finishing Gilbert on the feet to say hey I'm not just a grappler I can do it with my hands as well or is it, here's this great jiu-jitsu practitioner, I just submit him? Oh, it'll definitely be submission. I mean, I, I don't think that he's going to submit Gilbert. I mean, I would consider myself shocked if that happened. Um, I think that it probably will be some sort of knockout, whether a ground and pound or a standing knockout, um, because I just... I just think that Burns is so high level on the ground, you know, multiple degree black belt. He's competed in in high level pro jiu-jitsu against, you know, full-time grapplers and held his own there. So, I mean, I I would be very shocked to see uh, Hamza pull off the submission. But it it does bring up a good question of what is Hamza's approach going to be? Is he going to willingly engage in the wrestling like he did against 
Phillips and McKee and Jing Liang, or is he going to try to keep the fight standing and try to, you know, hurt Burns in the feet? Because we have seen Burns, you know, get wobbled by punches a few times. And uh, the size, the speed difference uh, for Jemayev will probably be uh, very real. I mean, the guy's going to be much bigger in there, right? I mean, I don't know the uh, the official stats. Let's, uh, I'm sure it's something like four inches of height, at, at least for Hamza, right? Um, and... When, yeah, the stats say four, four inches, um, but when they're fully rehydrated, it might be even a bigger size difference than that uh, because Chemayev could be 195, 200 pounds when it comes to fight night while Burns could be 185, 190. So, you know, the size difference is going to be really interesting for me to, here too. We've got a guy who can comfortably make middleweight, who looks big as a middleweight, taking on a former lightweight. So I think that's a big concern. Yeah, for sure. If there's something about Gilbert that does maybe give you some hope, there's two things. Um, the first is I saw him take on Damian Meyer. I watched the I watched the do the free fights uh, on YouTube, and I saw his match with Damian Meyer. Now, normally, if Damian Meyer takes it down, it's game over. And yet, he was able to get back to his feet up against Damian Meyer and managed obviously to get the knockout once he went standing. Now, I'm not going to say the same thing is going to happen and he's going to knock out Hamza, but it does show that a world-class grappler like Damian Meyer couldn't keep Gilbert Burns down. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the big concerns I have there, big sort of sort of optimists I have when it comes to Gilbert Burns. Do you think there's anything to take from the Damian Meyer fight? I actually had a completely different take in that uh, about that. So, I, I mean, while that win was impressive on its own, my thinking is that if Damien could pressure Burns and get him against the cage and get that, that back clinch where he kind of has the body lock and, you know, maybe one hook in, if he gave that up to, you know, 40-something-year-old Maya, who doesn't really have much of a striking threat, I think it's extremely likely that he's going to give Hamzat those same positions as well. But with uh, with Maya, he went very aggressive for the back take. He tried taking the back. He tried getting both hooks in, and he just got way too aggressive early on. He should have relaxed a little bit and tried to control Burns for longer instead of going for that dominant position. Um, I think Hamzat will be a bit more content to just ride that body lock and you know land some some uh, rabbit punches, some knees to the thighs and whatnot, and just slow Burns down for a while. Um, it's weird. My, my thinking is that Burns can win inside the first maybe 90 seconds, and then he could win past the seven-minute mark. But those minutes, the second through seven minutes, I, I don't really see much of a, a path for him because I think he either has to hurt Shemaya early and get him out of there, or he has to wait until uh, Hamzat slows down a little bit in the second half of the fight. But that that middle portion there, I think, should be all Shemaya just controlling or – uh, you know, riding him against the cage, like I was saying, uh, using that size advantage. Uh, and I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Chimaev is the better wrestler, too. So, I mean, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how these grappling exchanges go. I, I really hope Burns can make the fight more interesting because yes. I, I want to see Chimaev tested. We all want to see him tested. Um, but you know, ultimately, you got to think that Chimaev still win, will win the fight. You, um, I don't know if his chances are 86%, but, you know, they're, they're 80 something, you know, 80, 75 minimum. Uh, so uh, I, I'm still pretty confident that Chemayev will get it done. But in terms of betting, I mean, no way you could be betting six to one on Chemayev. It's just a matter of do you want to, you know, take the plunge on Burns? Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's, you know, probably a worthwhile bet. I mean, this is the toughest test of his MMA career by 
a gigantic margin and you're getting Burns a really complete good fighter at four to one odds. So, you know, Burns is probably the bet to be made. Yeah. And before we move on to the next fight, uh, one final question. Who are the secret Russian grapplers that Gilbert Burns was talking about? Oh, I don't uh, I don't even know. I didn't even hear him say that. But um, I mean, he's training at Sanford. He's got a crazy amount of bodies down there at Sanford. Uh, I, I've I made a tweet a couple months ago saying that like uh, listing just the, the welterweights and middleweights that train at Sanford. I mean, it's like. 10 to 15 relevant UFC middleweights and welterweights are training there. So he's probably at one of the best camps in the world to prepare for this matchup. But, um, you know, I hope it's, uh, I hope it's enough. I don't know. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be mad at all to see Burns win. Uh, I wouldn't be mad to see the Chamaya train keep rolling. I just hope we get a bit of an interesting fight instead of like a one-sided dominant fight. Call main event time and we are going to the bantamweight division and it's a fight that a lot of people have been looking forward to for a while. It is Aljamain Sterling who is making the first defense of his belt, a very contentious belt it has to be said, up against Piotr Jan. Now I've been doing a little bit of research, obviously this is a rematch from their first bout at UFC 259. Now I have got myself a, a few bit of stats in regards to this fight. Now at UFC 259... Um, Aljamain Sterling was a plus 125 underdog up against Piotr Jan, who you could get at minus 145. Going into this fight, that is expanded, and you can get Piotr Jan at minus 500, Aljamain Sterling plus 350. When it comes to the INC poll, it's even more extreme. Piotr Jan was predicted to win the fight 53% to Aljo's 47. This time around, Piotr Jan 88%, Aljamain Sterling 12 to put that into perspective, more people give Felicia Spencer a chance to win her title fight than they're giving Aljamain Sterling. That is, you know, a shocking statistic. One thing I'll say, though, I, I was a little shocked when you said that. I just pulled out the odds. Um, the, so one book, the, the most major book uh, for MMA betting did have... Jan as the plus 100 and Sterling as a slight favorites and then some other books had had it flipped the line was was pretty much a 50 50 line the first time I mean people were betting both sides all week um, and then obviously we saw one fighter be the much better fighter throughout that fight but he still didn't lose due to the, the unfortunate knee. And I'm not really sure what happened because I consider Jan, you know, one of the best fighters in the world. And you, I mean, it's just a huge, I don't know what it was, a, a brain fart or whatever you want to call it, a mistake for him to commit that foul. But we also did see John Jones, who has way more experience than Jan, uh, you know, probably double the experience uh, versus Anthony Smith, you know. 10, 15 years into his career, he illegally needs Smith in the head in the middle of their fight. I don't know. I mean, none of us are pro MMA fighters in the midst of a, a back and forth fight, and we don't know what's what's running through your head. But, you know, definitely a, a, a head scratching moment for Jan to commit such a blatant foul like that. So um, very interesting moment. Obviously, Aljo was flopping around on the ground. I don't really fault Aljo for taking the DQ win, right? I mean, you know, I wouldn't have faulted uh, Anthony Smith for taking it either. But, um, you know, he definitely did, you know, sell it a little bit. Uh, but in my opinion, rewatching the fight um, just a few days ago, I thought Sterling was concussed yes. severely in the first round. I mean, that, that the punch that dropped uh, him in the first round, I thought was one of the most 
visible times that someone has been concussed in the middle of a fight. I mean, Yant or Sterling was falling all over the place. His coordination was off. His his balance was off. His wrestling shots were terrible. I mean, I definitely think that he was uh, concussed right away in that round one of the fight. And you got to give him credit because he came back and won round two of that fight um, right after he got dropped in round one. So I, I thought that was impressive uh, based on that. But, you know, in terms of a rematch, I, I, we the the wrestling, obviously, people thought was going to go towards Aljo. Aljo just ran through Corey Sandhag and got the takedown, got the back take. People thought that it was going to be a big, uh, you know, part of Aljamain's game plan. But Peter Jan looked like the better wrestler in almost every single grappling exchange. I mean, all the takedowns were on Jan's side. Uh, Aljo got one brief takedown, but, I mean— uh, Jan clowned him in the wrestling, and that was uh, an area where people mm-hmm. thought Sterling was going to have a huge advantage. Uh, the cardio, the five-round experience, way in favor of Peter Jan. He fought a five-round fight against Sandhagen, uh, an amazing performance over five rounds since then. So, I mean, the, the five-round experience, the the power advantage, the wrestling, all is going towards Peter Jan. And I just don't see many areas where Aljamain has an advantage or a chance to win this fight. I do stand by my belief that we didn't see the best ultimate Sterling at 259. Um, I mm-hmm. think the concussion was a, a big factor. I do agree with you that it was a definite change in his approach after that knockdown and beforehand. Uh, but also, I think maybe the occasion was maybe a bit too much for him. He maybe psyched himself up a bit, a bit too much. And it was almost like he was trying too hard to win. And I think yeah, the commentator said that they said that at one point that he's stiff and he's trying too hard. Yeah. One thing I will say though is, I feel there's a lot of fan perceptions around Aljamain Sterling, which because of how he won the title and because of his behavior afterwards, I think it sort of made people downplay how good Aljo actually is. Like the narrative of the fight has gone from being Aljo is second best to Piotr Yard, which he was. And now it's become Aljo is one of the worst champions in UFC history, shouldn't even be part of the promotion. I think there's been a real extreme backlash against him, which I feel is very harsh. Because look at the guys that Aljo beat on his way to the title shot. Brett Johns, Cody Stearman, Jimmy Rivera, Pedro Munoz, first man to submit Corey Sandhagen. That is a good run of contenders. Oh yeah, it's great. I mean, he... he... What is a great fighter, no doubt about it. You know, probably top 15, 20 in the UFC. And just because he ran into Peter Jan, who could be top two in the UFC, doesn't, you know, make him, you know, a bad fighter all of a sudden. But I think that his his attitude, his, you know, social media presence yeah. since the fight has just made things much worse for him, right? If he if he took like a a different approach to you know the his win you know after the fight if he you know made it more of a joke and whatnot and say oh like oh yeah i was i was acting i got my win bonus too motherfuckers i got this belt around my waist too uh of course i sold that knee um i mean he i don't know he just kind of has acted a little whiny since then and he's made things worse for himself but you know you can't you can't take too much away from him he is still a terrific fighter and um you know, I, I wish him the best. I, I still think he's going to lose the fight, obviously, on Saturday. But uh, after this fight, I still think there's a whole lot of matchups that, that are interesting uh, for Aljamain. Um, I would like to maybe see him fight the winner of uh, Rob Font versus Marlon Vera. 
after this fight, or maybe a Sandhagen rematch or something. That that's still interesting. So only Sterling getting some undeserved hate, but you know he also made his own bed, and there's a reason why. If Aljamain Sterling is to upset the odds, what do you think is the best avenue for him to do so? Is there anything you've seen in Piotr Jan's game that maybe thinks Aljo has a has an opening here? Well, I would say he he did get a little bit close with a flying knee in the first round or two of the fight. So maybe outside of like a crazy flying knee knockout, um, the 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 area where he has an advantage over Jan is by throwing more strikes per round. I'd say that's his biggest advantage in the fight is that. He does throw more volume, you know. He he comes out aggressive, throwing a high tempo of strikes. But w the the counterpart to that is that all of those strikes pumping out are going to give Peter Jan opportunities to counter, yes. to make reads, to find harder shots, and that's what we saw in round one of the first fight. Is initially um, Sterling was having success. He was pressuring. He was landing some body kicks. He was making Jan a little uncomfortable early on. But the first time Jan made a good read and sat down on that right hand, it's and Aljamain, you know, flying through the air onto his ass. Um, and, you know, he did recover well. He did get right back into the fight. He did do well in round two. But uh, I, his biggest advantage being that striking volume, it's so hard to leverage that to win multiple rounds when he's at a power disadvantage, when Jan is just a much, much harder hitter. And all, all that volume, all those strikes is just going to give more time for Jan to, to find that counter, to, to sit down on that punch, and to you know inevitably hurt uh, Sterling at some point in this fight. I think one of the biggest strengths that he's going to need is movement. Because if you look at the people who have had success against Piotr Jan, they've all been guys who are very, very active. We saw that with Corey Sandhagen mm -hmm. in round one. Jimmy Rivera had a lot of success in the first two rounds. Uh, John Dodson, to an extent. I just don't think that Aljo has that sort of fighting style to be able to do that, and especially mm -hmm. not over five rounds, because his cardio was shot by the end of that fourth round in the first fight. Yeah, or even the third round, honestly, I think was was pretty. he was pretty tired. Um, but... One thing he could do is, is abandon the takedown attempts, right? I mean, that was obviously a big part of his game plan in the first fight. It didn't go well for him at all. So this fight, you you got to think that he's going to shoot less takedowns, right? I mean, if he shot 17 takedowns, I think was the number. I'm not sure that number is completely accurate. That's what the stats say. But if he shot that many takedowns and only got 10 seconds worth of control time, he wasted a whole lot of energy that he could, you know, maybe use for other purposes. Um, my, you know, advice for him would be to let not constantly pressure Jan. He doesn't need to, to pressure him every second of the fight. He should, you know, pressure a little bit, throw his body kicks, land those long strikes of his, and then, and then back up a little and then let Jan come to him. He doesn't need to be in Jan's face for the full 25 minutes because, that's when Jan's going to really figure out those counters. But if he uses the big cage, he uses his movement, he lands those long strikes of his with his length, and then he backs up a little and makes Jan come to him, that could be a better strategy for him because I just think if he constantly is pressuring Jan, it's going to make Jan more urgent to sit down on some strikes and uh, you know hurt Sterling with those punches. Um, but 
you know, with with the five round experience advantage, with the body punching of Peter Yan, the way he he rips to the body with all of his strikes, I just think it's going to be hard for for Sterling to have much of a chance at rounds four and five. I think those championship rounds favor Yan so heavily. Um, you saw him pick it up the tempo every round versus Corey Sanhagen, and the guy has just really mastered the five round fight. I think he. He and Volkanovski, who we're going to talk about next, have just done such a masterful job at at tuning their bodies and their fighting styles over that five rounds uh, that it's just you know very very hard for him to to very hard for anybody to beat him. So I think Sterling will get out to a, an early start and a, a good start like he did in the last fight, um, and then inevitably uh, Jan's going to start to take over in the second, third, fourth round and just run away with it like he did in the first fight. You made a really good point there. Uh, the first fight took place in a 25-foot cage. This one is in the 30-foot. Is that going to be a factor? Yeah, I mean, I definitely I think so. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, I don't exactly know. Like I said, what I was saying about that movement with Sterling, he could, you know, let off the pressure a little bit. Um, but... I think that the the small cage would have been an, an advantage for Sterling in the first fight because he was the one trying to wrestle. He was the one trying to pin down uh, Jan and, and land a takedown. But that's, that small cage wasn't an advantage for him. So there's a lot that Al Jermaine can do to, to improve his chances here. But even if he does everything correct, I still think that Jan is just the, the much better fighter and he, he will inevitably win the fight. Is your money going on Piotr Jan? If so, how's it going to happen? Well... The interesting or the strategy with Jan, I think, is to wait around and then bet him. Uh, I mean, the same thing happened with Sandhagen. Um, you know, I, I was very confident in Jan to win that fight, but I said, why would I bet on Jan at two to one right now before the fight when there's a good chance that uh, after round one you're going to get a much better price? And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Sandhagen came out and he won round one, and then you could bet on Peter Jan's at you know even money or something like that or a pick 'em price. So I think that that's the strategy here, you know, don't bet Jan before the fight and maybe after a round or two, look to live bet him at some point. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is I feel like Jan could have finished uh, Sanhagen. You know, um, he he probably could have finished uh, Aljamain in round four of that fight without the illegal knee. It seems like he's a little reluctant to, to go for that finish in those rounds four and five. It seems like he kind of likes going to a decision. So I'll say uh, Jan by 49-46 decision is my official pick. Great minds think alike. I'm going the same result, 49-46. One last thing before we move on to the main event. What would your reaction be if Piotr Jan gets himself disqualified again and Aljo retains the belt? I don't know. I would be I would be at a loss for words. I don't I don't know. I think that's I think that's even lower of a chance than Aljamain winning by, you know, flying knee knockout in round one. I mean, I would be I would be shocked if Aljamain won the fight personally. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm obviously a, a much bigger fan of Peter Jan. So I would love to see him win and, and get the title back. Main event time now. We are going up to the featherweight division. Alex Volkanovsky, the featherweight champion, he's going to be making another defense of his belt. It's not against the man that a lot of people thought it was going to be, though. It's going up against the Korean Zombie, the number four seed. Uh, the betting odds for this one, Alex Volkanovsky, you can get him as a minus 450 favorite. Uh, Korean Zombie comes in at plus 325. The INC poll right now, Volkanovsky 80%, Korean Zombie 20. So let us go back to January of this year. 
We've received the news that Max Holloway, unfortunately, has to pull out of his title fight with Alex Volkanovsky. And a number of the top featherweight fighters all throw their name into the hat saying, I want this title fight. Did the UFC make the right call going with Korean Zombie? Because there were five names really doing the rounds, which was him, Yair Rodriguez, Josh Emmett, Arnold Allen, and Giga Chikatsi. Obviously, this was pre-Calvin Cater. Did the UFC make the right call going with Korean Zombie? Hell no. Um, I think it's crazy, honestly, that that they chose Zombie. Uh, you know, he's on a, a one-fight winning streak. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think. Oh, he did beat Moicano. He did beat Frankie Edgar in 2019. But he got demolished over five rounds by uh, Brian Ortega. And then they gave Brian Ortega a, a title fight off of one win, even though he, you know, he he got demolished by Holloway and then had one fight in two or three years. And they gave him a title shot off of that, which didn't make much sense to me. And then they're going ahead and doing the same thing here. Uh, Zombie defeated Ige by decision. A good win. Good performance from him. But a one win title shot is just ridiculous, especially I think the timing was bad because um the Giga and Cater fight was happening. Josh Emmett just fought in the month of uh, December. Um, there wasn't really a clear candidate, but how can Arnold Allen, who is now on a nine-fight win streak, still not be close to a title shot, and a guy who is on a one-fight win streak is getting a title shot? I mean, that doesn't make much sense to me. And also, Holloway was was back to normal like two to three weeks after i mean he got injured and then i forget what kind of injury it was but then for some reason his his recovery time got shortened by a lot and all of a sudden like he would have been good to go by now again so i mean i personally don't like the fight really much at all i'm always uh, excited to watch alexander Volkanovsky fight i think he is the the best fighter in the world right now um and it just doesn't really do much that Korean Zombie is getting a title fight, you know? How do you feel about it? Well, my personal pick would have been Josh Emmett. I think it's a combination of star power, winning streak, and also as well, if out of those five contenders, I think Josh Emmett is the biggest wild card because he does have that one-shot power, and maybe he does manage to find that opening to crack that big overhand to cause Volkanovski some problems. Um... I think as a fan of the Korean Zombie, as somebody who enjoys watching his fights, I'm glad to see him getting this opportunity. But I'm in a similar boat to you. I think of what we've seen from Volkanovski so far in his career, I don't think there's any avenue for Korean Zombie to win this one. It, I hate to say it, 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 sort of, it sort of reminds me a little bit of when Bisping fought Rockhold. Now, obviously, Bisping upset the odds, but it's sort of like that sort of journeyman veteran fighter who sort of falls into this big opportunity Maybe he does get it done. Maybe he does get that big feel-good moment. But I see this fight playing out the way that most people thought Bisping versus Rockhold was going to. Yeah, maybe it's like a cyborg and Yana Kuniskaya or something like that. That might be a, be a little bit better of an example. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, Korean Zombie is a legend of MMA. He's had, you know, a lot of great moments, but... I just don't see any areas that uh, he can really win the fight. I guess a knockout in the first two rounds is going to be his best chance. He needs to catch Vol uh, Volkanovski early. We did see Volkanovski uh, wobble, dropped a little bit by Holloway in the first and second rounds of the rematch. Um, but that's really 
Oh, Chad Mendez maybe hurt him a bit too, but we we really haven't seen Volkanovski struggle much in, in the UFC. I mean, he he is a fantastic fighter. Seems to be getting better at every phase. Uh, obviously, he survived those incredibly deep uh, triangle and guillotine attempts from Ortega. So you got to think that it's you know virtually impossible to submit this guy at this point. Uh, Chan Sung Jung is known for having, you know, pretty low volumes strikes. He's more of like a burst and knockout type of guy than he is like a consistent volume type of guy. So I don't see him being able to win three out of five rounds against Volkanovski. So, I mean, he's going to need to hurt Volkanovski early and translate it into a finish because the later this fight goes, the more Volkanovski is going to be able to build and use those feints and just use his entire arsenal of tools. And I think that he's going to probably run away with this fight in three, four, five, maybe even finish Chan Sung Jung along the way. We mentioned this earlier on when we were talking about Hamzat, how one of the sort of concerns we have about him is we don't know how he handles adversity. And I bring this up because with Alex Volkanovsky, one of the things that impresses so many people about Volkanovsky is we have seen him in trouble. We have seen him get dropped and then make the adjustments to come back to win the fight. Trad Mendes dropped him in the first round and he came back to uh, end up winning that fight. Finish him. Yeah, he meant finished him. Um, and then with Brian yeah. Ortega, we saw him face a lot of issues. Obviously, Ortega got a number of submission attempts. He powered through them and was able to win the fight. So we've seen what he's able to do when his back's against the wall. And that's why a lot of people hold him in such high regard. I'm similar to you. I think he's... Mm -hmm. It's between him and Kamara Usman for the pound-for-pound best fighter in the world. It's 1A and 1B for me. Yeah, um... Yeah, I mean, obviously, the all, your your rankings are arbitrary, but uh, I think that oh, not you personally. I mean, everyone's everyone's individual rankings are arbitrary. But I, I thought Camaro took took a step down against uh, Colby. I didn't think that the the fighter who beat Colby looked like the best fighter in the world. Uh, while Volkanovski, the guy who beat Ortega, just looked comprehensively amazing in in all areas. I mean, uh, boxing, submission, defense. Uh, cardio, his ability to win rounds and his output is just amazing. Um, and uh, also, you know, you're talking about adversity. The man was down 2 0 to Max Holloway. Who Who is losing two rounds to nothing against Max Holloway and comes back to win them? I mean, that's just an incredibly impressive feat on its own. And, uh, you know, I, I love watching Volkanovski fight. I'm really excited for the fight. Um, even though I don't think the matchup will be that much comp- very competitive, I don't think. Uh, zombie necessarily deserves the the opportunity but i still think it's gonna be entertaining you know i can't imagine this fight not being entertaining right uh it seems virtually impossible for not to not to have some drama and uh, excitement and uh hopefully we get a finish here too because volkanovsky definitely looked like he could have finished uh ortega at several moments of that fight Herb Dean was, you know, hesitant to pull the trigger on the stoppage as always. But I think we're going to see, you know, Volkanovski pour it on and get like a third or fourth round TKO here. What's your pick? I'm going to go fourth round. Um, And I'm going to see it very similar to you. I think that I think the Korean zombie is more than capable of causing problems, landing a few good shots. But I think that Volkanovski's output is so much higher because zombie these days is much more of a counter striker. I think a lot of people see the sort of wars with Leonard Garcia, George Roop, that sort of thing, and think that he's sort of this this wild brawling type. He's he's very much a counter striker these days. Um, so I can see Volkanovski piling on a lot of uh, output, and eventually that output waning on Zombie and 
sort of like up against the fence. Herb Dean steps in. Volkanovsky wins the fight. We seem to be giving Zombie a lot of discredit on this preview. If there are any sort of big strengths that the Zombie does have that you can point to and say, this is how he won the fight, what would you look at? I guess just like one punch power, you know, uh, Volkanovski's not really known for, you know, causing a lot of knockdowns or, you know, knocking people out with his hands. Uh, Zombie definitely has way more knockouts with, with his hands. Uh, obviously, that huge punch he caught Moicano with was great. He, you know, he clubbed Frankie Edgar for a first round knockout. Uh, Dennis Bermudez, nasty uppercut knockout. So I think it's going to have to be like a, a an early big punch that stuns Volkanovsky. Um, and just looking at the odds real quick, uh, zombie by knockout in rounds one or two is 14 to one. So that's the way I, I would play him if you have to do it, because if the fight gets to round three, I, I think that the Chan Sung Jung's chances are, you know, less than 5% at that point. So he's got a small window to get it done to hurt Volkanovsky to catch him early. Uh, but outside of that, I, I don't see him having a chance. I'm in the same boat. Um, and going back to Volkanovsky, we'll probably make this sort of like the last comment before we start wrapping things up and moving on to the viewer questions. Um, if Alex Volkanovsky was to win this fight, he would be on a 21-fight winning streak, uh, dating back to 2013, and having never lost as a featherweight. His only loss in his career came when he was fighting at welterweight. And you look at the guys who will have on his portfolio, Max Holloway twice, Jose Aldo, Brian Ortega, Chad Mendez, Korean Zombie. Are we starting to put Volkanovski in these sort of great featherweight sort of echelons? Oh, for sure. He's got to be already up there. I mean, you don't beat Max Holloway two times without being, you know, a, a tremendous fighter. Um, and it's going to, you know, make that con that uh, conversation around the greatest featherweight of all time extremely interesting because it's it's I think it's already extremely neck and neck and neck between Holloway, Aldo, and Volkanovski. And if Volkanovski has wins over both of those guys and continues his dominant reign at featherweight, I mean, the guy's got a great claim to take over that greatest featherweight of all time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's got a very rightful claim to that 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 greatest featherweight of all time title. Well, I've been teasing this all over social media and a big thank you to the people who have contributed. We're going to try a brand new segment just to wrap up the preview show here. We're going to be doing our own sort of DMs from donks as it were. So thank you, Luke Thomas and Brian Campbell for me blatantly stealing your idea. So we've got ourselves three viewer questions here and we're going to see what John makes of these. This first one is from Lizette Paris, who asks, why is the Korean zombie such a big underdog against Volkanovski? Um, well, I, I have alluded to it already, but I, because I think he really only has uh, one way to win, and that is that early knockout. Uh, I think that Volkanovski is uh, the best round winner in the sport, and just from the beginning of the round to the end of the round, the guy is, is making reads, he's throwing strikes, he's doing damage, and he just knows how to win rounds. He knows how to secure rounds. Just like against Ortega, he was in those deep submission attempts, you know, two deep submission attempts, and he still won that round three by just pounding Ortega his head into the canvas at the end of that round the guy just knows how to win rounds uh he's on a 20 fight win streak uh, uh zombie doesn't even really deserve this title fight so you know the odds are probably right at, at uh zombie being a five to one underdog uh this question here is from rorschach rorschach exclamation mark i love the fact that he had to point that out 
If Aljo loses a largely one-sided fight, will his championship reign be regarded as the most undeserved legacy ever in MMA? No, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, you know, I, I, I said it earlier, but you can't fault the guy. I mean, he got a legally need in the head. He could, he, could, he could take the win. He could take the championship. He could take his win bonus. And then he could start over in a fight that he was losing. I mean, any logical person would have taken that avenue out. So um, you can't fault him for doing that. And, you know, I still think he's a more legitimate champion than, you know, Nico Montano for example. So I, I wouldn't go that harsh for him. I love that Nico is the benchmark of bad UFC champions. That's because of the INC video. Obviously, it's cemented into everyone's mind. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would put, I think the way that he's sort of framing this question is, again, it's sort of like Aljo's title vein. And look, it's a bad reign because of how he won it and because of what happened when sort of like the just result happened. But... I think he's such a good fighter away from the title fight. You can't put him as one of the worst champions of all time. It's sort of like, yeah. if you're calling him a bad champion, it's in the same way that Vitor Belfort is a bad UFC champion because of the manner he won the fight, not because of how good he was before and after. Yeah, I mean, Aljamain versus Sandhagen could have been for an interim title and no one would have batted an eye. I mean... He is a you know a championship caliber fighter. He just happens to be in a division with the unstoppable force, Peter Yan. And our final question is from our own Joe Neal. He asked this one on Twitter. He says, "Does Gilbert Burns get a title shot if he beats Hamzat?" That's an interesting one. Um, I mean, if Usman is still the champion, uh, I, I don't see I don't see him getting a title shot. I mean, I, I think we're all. I think Leon Edwards versus uh, Camaro is confirmed, right? So if Usman wins that, I don't see them doing the Burns rematch so quickly. And if Edwards wins that, they're going to give Usman an immediate rematch too. So uh, I'll, I'll say no to that that question. And finally, to wrap this up, John, uh, your general opinion of the card. I think it's safe to say as of this moment in time, best card of 2022? Um, I don't have a... You know, concrete recollection of the first ones, but I, I think it's I'm I'm looking forward to it. Even though the odds are uh, you know big favorites in the top three fights, I mean I'm still extremely excited to see them. Um, I mean I I'd say that I'm most excited for Hobbs Hot and Gilbert. Honestly, we already saw Aljamain versus Peter. Uh, we already kind of know what's going to happen there, in my opinion. Uh, Volkanovski, a, a massive massive favorite. I think he's going to you know do his thing and dominate there. But Burns versus Hamzat is is the the big Big, you know, anticipation fight where people, no one knows what's going to happen. And uh, I'm stoked for that one personally. And uh, so I'm really excited for the card. I'd say, you know, nine out of 10 excitement level. And I'm sure you'll be breaking down all of the fights, not only the main card fights, but also all the stuff on the prelims as well, like Mickey Gall, um, also taking on Julio Arce. He's back in action. You're going to be covering all of those fights. Where is the best place to find you, John? Yes, sir. We'll be uh, talking all the fights uh, later in the week, probably Wednesday, uh, Thursday, some one of those days. Um, Martian MMA podcast on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, and 
Apple Podcasts, and you can follow me on Twitter at UFO underscore UFC. Thank you all to, uh, to for tuning into the, the channel, watching the INC Live videos. I appreciate all of you, and uh, thanks for Carl for having me, of course, as always, and we'll see you before uh, 274 in a few more weeks. Yeah, USC 274 taking place in just, what, three or four weeks' time. Another big card as well, uh, Charles Oliveira versus Justin Gaethje. Rose Namajunas versus Carla Esparza. Finally, the rematch is taking place. We're going to have that one completely covered. Stay tuned to INC. We've got plenty more coming up. Joe Neal is going to be continuing churning out those post-fight recaps. We're hoping to get ourselves a few more fighter interviews coming up. Uh, so please stay tuned and thank you so much again for your continued support to make this sort of porky little internet show what 300 subscribers which is a hell of a lot better than we anticipated so once again a big thank you this is the inc that's been john martian and we'll see, see you, you again soon for ufc 274 bye-bye for now